Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Hi there, my name is Stephanie Hoffman. We are here with Allison Sokolblosser at Sokolblosser Winery. It is July 6, 2018, and our very first question is why wine? Why wine? That is such a broad question, and there are so many ways I can go with that. And talk about them all. <laughs> yeah. So why wine for me? Um, to me, it's all about the land and the family, and that wine is something that helps to connect people with each other and help connect people with the land where the wine where the grapes were grown, where the wine comes from. And so that's something that's always been very important to me and has drawn me in. To me, it's also family because it's a family business and I love working with my family. So how did you get into wine? So you're, it's a, you're a second generation um, mm -hmm. winery here. When did you, what did you do whenever you were younger with the winery? What was it like growing up around the wine industry? Mm -hmm. So my, I have two brothers. Uh, we always joke that our parents had kids for the free labor. <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, it's very true when you're a farming family, especially when you're just starting out. And so growing up, everything was around the vineyard and was around the winery. Um, open house weekends occurred during you know, Thanksgiving, Memorial weekend, so it was always all hands on deck and because our parents were always working, we were therefore with them in the business. And so the business was just part of family life and I didn't know any differently until I went off to school and, and got sort of seduced by working in the real world mm -hmm. and then quickly realized that you know maybe the real world's not all that it's cracked up to be and working back at the vineyard and in the family business is actually quite cool. And so I came back in 2004 um, after working outside the business and getting my MBA and never looked back. When I came back in 2004, my brother Alex had already been back in the business and said, you know, hey, I want to make sure you're coming for the right reasons and is this going to be your last job that you ever have? And I said, yeah, this is my last job. I'm going to be here forever and uh, we are only looking forward now. Um, was there an expectation when you were growing up that you guys would continue on the family business? There were never any expectations that we would um, make this our full-time life. There was always an expectation that we would work. Um, you know, we always were working alongside our parents and, you know, holidays and, and summer vacations and so forth. There was always that expectation. And, and I'm really grateful that my parents taught us how to, how to work and, and um, how to feel good about working hard. Uh, but there wasn't an expectation that we had to work in the business. They encouraged us to pursue our passions and to do other things outside of the business. And then both Alex and I came back into the business uh, because we wanted to. We wanted to be back here. This was this was definitely our choice. And we're doing the same kind of thing with the third generation now. And the third generation ranges from 2 to 18, where we're exposing them to the business, encouraging them to participate, making sure that they learn how to work, <laughs> and yet 
really encouraging them to go pursue their passions and their dreams and go to college and work outside the business. And then if they want to come in and if there's an opportunity, then that will work out. That's awesome. Uh, what were some of your favorite memories in your early, in your childhood growing up in the winery? Are there any moments that really stand out? Well, a lot of amazing memories growing up in the vineyard. Uh, you know, when you look at the vineyard and you think, oh, you know, these hills are perfect for, for vineyards and, you know, it's sort of natural frost protection and it's a gentle slope so that it's not too steep for tractors. Well, all of that makes it also perfect for sledding. So <laughs> those few winters when we would get enough snow and, you know, how things around here, everything just immediately shuts down with a little bit of snow, <laughs> which is great. So school was called off and we would just sled. I mean, the, the sledding hills were pretty epic. And, you know, it was always hard though, carrying the sled back up to the top of the vineyard, but it was a lot of fun and totally worth it sliding down. So things like that, um, you know, also helping my parents around harvest time. And, you know, even today when um, I hear the forklifts and we have one old relic forklift from my <laughs> childhood still here that we use and it's propane and it stinks. And I love the smell. When I hear that forklift, when I smell it, it like takes me back to when I was, you know, six, seven, eight years old. Now all of our new forklifts are um, electric and much more environmentally friendly, but we still hold on to that one forklift just to use during harvest time. And so it's special things like that that take me back to my childhood here. Um, I, of course, remember the work. I remember, you know, traveling as a family to different wine festivals. Um, and then I remember learning how to count money, you know, back in the day when people paid um, with cash, you know, at the end of the evening, my parents would take home the little cash box um, to count it and reconcile it and prepare the deposit. And um, I got to help count it and face all the bills. And um, it was great because that prepared me to then work as a bank teller when I was in college. Um, what do you remember most whenever you participated in harvest when you were a child? What were the things besides the forklift? Were there any other just moments that you really remembered? So I remember the crisp, cold mornings, um, the light dew sort of covering the vines and the, and the grapes. Um, I remember the hubbub of all the tractors. And, you know, when you see the tractors and the forklifts on the crush pad, it's, they're, it's like they're doing a dance. So, you know, the forklift and tractor dance um, is great. Uh, and just the sounds of the forklift and raising the grapes and dumping the grapes into the hopper, um, the press. I remember, you know, climbing into the press when I was pretty little to clean it, which was a terrifying experience. <laughs> but because I was so small, I, it was very easy for me to do. And, you know, now when I see the guys um, or the interns cleaning it out and, you know, they're full size adults, I think, oh, man, it really is so much easier when you're seven years old to get in <laughs> to clean that. Uh, so stuff like that. Yeah. So you said that you went off and you got your MBA and you're mm -hmm. working out in the real world. What was why did you decide to come back? What was that moment when you realized you wanted to go back to the winery? 
So growing up, my parents never excluded us from any part of the business so or any conversations around the business. So all of their successes, all of their challenges, um, whatever was happening in the business, they talked about around the dining room table. So I was just exposed to it without really even being aware what it was. And so when I went off to work in the real world, and first I started out in high-tech PR, which sounded really cool, but then you know, when I couldn't explain to my grandmother what the technology was that I was trying to help market and promote, it was like, well, okay, am I really doing something that, that I love? Um, and then I went and I worked at Nike for a short bit and realized I'm like this big, you know, this is an amazing company, they're doing awesome things, but I don't really matter that much. And it was, um, you know, I was used to at the dining room table asking whatever question if I didn't understand something or offering an idea, no matter how crazy it was. Um, and that kind of thing doesn't really fly in corporate America. And so I'm glad I tried it and um, I enjoyed it. And I certainly learned a lot doing those things. Uh, but I knew that, you know, after doing that, it was sort of like an epiphany of, no, my heart belongs at the vineyard. Um, I want to work with my family and, you know, I want to be a part of building a whole business. And I love the variety of what we do. We're farmers, we're manufacturers, um, we're distrib you know, distributing product, we have hospitality and retail. Uh, it's so varied and I love that. Yeah. Um, so how did your MBA help you in the business now? I know a lot of fancy acronyms. <laughs> um, you know, I think the um, getting an MBA just gives you a broad perspective. Um, and it's, I love to learn. So I would love to go back and do it again. Or, you know, if there's a part two, I would love to do that. Because I think it's always important to push yourself to learn, to be exposed to different things. There were some great hard skills, especially around finance and you know I took a tax accounting class that was fascinating even though I'm not an accountant you know I wanted to take all these other things um, and it was just it was a great opportunity to meet people who have also different perspectives work in cross-functional teams which is very um, helpful in the business environment as well and then it's a great network made a lot of lifelong friends and people who are going off to be really successful in their own rights too. Definitely. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the transition to just working here at the winery then to becoming a uh, co-president? So when I came back in, I started as director of marketing. And prior to that, during you know college breaks and stuff, I had you know worked a lot in marketing, and that was more my background was you know the marketing and the PR side of things, and then also the the retail sales with the tasting room. So that's what I started off doing when I came back in was doing marketing, and then I took over the retail sales side of things, and then. Um, when my mother and brother and I planned out the transition, it wasn't long after I came back into the business that my mom decided that she wanted to retire. And so we, we had a three-year transition plan um, to transition the day-to-day the -day duties from her to the two of us. And so Alex and I divided up the responsibilities. He more naturally um, was into the, you know, the vineyards and the farming aspect and then also overseeing our one 
winemaker at the time. Now Alex actually is our winemaker, so that was another transition. Uh, and I was more naturally on the business side of things. So I had marketing and retail sales. I took on accounting and finance and HR and IT. And then um, Alex and I initially shared our distributor sales efforts. And then um, when he transitioned in 2011, 2012-ish to take over winemaking completely as winemaker, um, then I took over all of the distributor sales responsibilities. So it was a pretty well thought out methodical transition, which is somewhat unusual for family businesses, uh, but it worked well for us. Yeah, can you talk a little bit more like about that transition because that's a long time three years where there what were the challenges what did you really like about being able to stretch it out that mm -hmm. long so we started out as both being vice presidents and then we had a year where we were essentially acting as co-presidents but we didn't have the title and then um, we got the title and then my mom was sort of around but we were running things. So that was how the, the transition worked. And the challenges were many because <laughs> my mother, um, had been running the business since 1990. So, you know, this was 18 years and she really ran it as a one woman show and she grew the business and made us much more successful. Uh, and she did an amazing job, but everything funneled through her. All the, ev all the decisions went through her and that was what worked for her managing the business. And that wasn't how Alex and I wanted to do it because we were co-presidents, which is a really unique and unusually, um, an unusual uh, model for managing a business. And everyone warned us that it was not a good model for running a business, but that didn't stop us. You know, we have, we planted, my parents planted a vineyard in Oregon. We don't take the easy route out. Of course not. Easy road for anything. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so we, um, you know, we had challenges along the way of trying to change that decision-making and sort of retraining the staff who had been very loyal to my mother and were used to her decision-making style to more of um, a, the decision-making being with Alex and me and even including our key managers as well in our executive committee. So that was a big change. Um, it was really hard for my mom to let go. This was her identity. This is all she knew for her whole life. And so to take away the power, even though it was her choice to give up the power, to take that away from her was really hard. Um, and there was a moment actually that really made the transition truly successful. And that moment was when my mother fell down a flight of stairs and broke her <laughs> ankle which sounds terrible, but <laughs> what was so important about that moment was, and she was fine, was that it, it forced her literally to stay home for, I think it was eight weeks or 10 weeks. Uh -huh. She could not physically get into the office. <laughs> and that was the time Alex and I needed to realize, okay, we can do this. We can do this. Mom's not here. Mom's okay. We can do this. And it was a good experience for all of us. We needed that to build our confidence, both for her to build her confidence in us and for us to build our confidence in ourselves. Well, since that transition, how, what has it been like working with Alex? Because 
and not only as co-presidents, but he's also your mm -hmm. brother. So mm -hmm. how does so the challenges and the successes of growing up in the same family and understanding those values, but still being siblings? Yeah, how much time do you have? <laughs> Stay here all day. <laughs> so I am so lucky that I get to work with my brother. It's amazing um, to be able to work. You know, I've talked about how amazing it is to work with family, but especially with him. Um, it doesn't mean that there's not challenges. We are complete opposites in pretty much every single way. Uh, you know, he's, he's our winemaker. He's very creative. He does have an MBA, which is great because he understands the numbers and the importance of the numbers. And I can talk to him about, you know, cost of goods and all of that. And he actually gets it, which is great. He also has a background in sales because he's such a friendly, personable, outgoing guy, uh, which is also amazing. So, um, I couldn't ask for a better partner. That doesn't mean that we don't disagree. That doesn't mean that we don't butt, head, butt heads sometimes, and that you know I don't think he's a moron. But <laughs> for the most time, most part, I think 99.9% of the time, I he you know he pretty much walks on water. He's my older brother, and he's really smart. He's a great winemaker, and I couldn't ask for a better business partner. Can you talk about your first major decision that either you uh, made as um, co-presidents or you and Alex made together as co-presidents? Ah, I thought you were going to ask what was the first big thing that we disagreed about. Ooh, but that one too. Yeah, Let's do both. Do both. <laughs> okay, I'll start with that one because it was, in hindsight, it was very humorous. So we were remodeling um, our offices, and mm -hmm. you know we do. Historically, we've done everything except for this beautiful new tasting room. We've done everything very, very frugally, very much on the budget, like used furniture, all of that. And when we were redoing the offices, we decided to get this really sustainable, nice um, Herman Miller furniture because we thought, well, we're going to have it for a long time and it was a tight space, so let's get it so we can maximize the space. And then I said, all right, we're going to get, not only are we getting that furniture, which we agreed on, we're going to get nice desk chairs. Because again, we're going to be sitting on these chairs for 20 years. And he said, no way. Go to Staples. I want a $99 chair. That's it. I'm not spending, you know, and it was, I don't know, five or $600 on a chair at the time. Mm -hmm. And I said, come on. This is, we're, you sit in this every single day. Let's get ourselves nice chairs. And it was a huge debate. We actually had to go to our business coach to help referee the conversation. <laughs> and she finally just said, Alex, let it go. Your sister's getting you nice chairs and you'll get over it. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, I think in 2007, we still are sitting on the same chairs every day. He loves his chair. <laughs> I love my chair. And you know, those chairs probably have another 10 years of life in them. So mm -hmm. that was the first really big disagreement. Yeah. And so. you won it, so. I did. <laughs> so I've, I, yeah. yeah. We won't go into how many I've won. Yeah, on the record that on you won record. at least one. Yeah, <laughs> well, I won more than one, but, <laughs> but no one's counting. <laughs> no one's counting. Um, so the first big decision that we made um, was to buy another piece of property. Um, so we closed on it in 2008, um, right? You know, the year that we took over as co-presidents, and you know, up until that point, my parents hadn't, you know, we, our family hadn't bought any property since the 80s, and they had paid 
you know, I don't know. I think the most they paid was like $1,200 an acre or mm -hmm. something like that, which was a big stretch back then. And so we wanted to, we found this piece of property um, almost contiguous to our estate, so here in the Dundee Hills, and we wanted to buy it. And it was expensive. And the land values had come up quite a bit since the 80s. And so it just made the family very nervous about you know, well, how, how, how does this pay for itself? And we knew it was the right thing for the business and especially for the next generation. And so it was um, something we felt really strongly about and we were able to convince the family. And so we, we bought it right before the economy crashed. So oh, timing was maybe not the best, but um, we don't regret buying it. Mm -hmm. And you said it was really important for the next generation. Why was this piece of land so important for future planning? Yeah, we want to keep the business in the family. And um, we know that in order to be able to support, you know, the first generation, the second generation, and the third generation, the business is going to need to grow. We have to do it in a really smart way, though, because this is all that we have. We don't have any outside partners. We don't, um, you know, have money that we made elsewhere. Uh, this, is, this is what we have for the family. And so um, to be able to grow, we know that we're going to need a little more property um, and to have you know to continue to strengthen our brand and so that was really important for that um, you know our original estate with 80 is you know like 70 acres and so we just needed a little bit more now we've got 85 acres here in the Dundee Hills um, we also have leased two other vineyards one other in the Dundee Hills and one in the Ola Amity Hills and you know buying land does not make sense for any kind of short-term return on investment. The only reason you buy land is for that long-term payback. And we may not realize that payback in our lifetime. It will be the next generation who realizes that return. What would you say is your business or marketing philosophy? Big question. <laughs> That's a very big question too. Hmm. Um, so I, you know, referenced early on that what I love about the business is that wine, it's liquid art and it connects people to each other and also to the land. And so that's really our philosophy is how can we share our liquid art with the world? And I want our liquid art on tables everywhere around the world. It's not just you know that we want to be in Oregon. We want to be on the in the best restaurants in London and Tokyo, and you know in great wine shops in everywhere. You know from Iowa to Florida to New York City, mm -hmm. uh, and helping people to connect with each other and with our land over that bottle of wine. That's really what I love and, and that's the philosophy and the marketing approach that we take. We're telling a story, you know, with everything that we do. We're trying to provide when people come here a really great, genuine and authentic Oregon wine country experience where, you know, they get to um, see the land, touch the land, experience the wines, maybe have a culinary experience that complements it as well. So it's really all about the story and the, and the experience. What are some of the challenges of marketing a winery and marketing your family story um, in the current age mm -hmm. of the Oregon wine industry? Yeah. So when my parents started the whole industry, literally 
fit in our living room and would get to, you know, everyone would get together. I didn't really know what they, who they were, what they were talking about, but I, you know, would watch and I would observe. Um, now the whole organ industry barely fits in the convention center in Portland and our annual conferences have grown, you know, so big. I walk around and I don't know everybody. And I felt like I used to be able to walk around and for the most part know everybody or at least had heard of everybody. So I think it's amazing that there's so many wineries in Oregon now and that, you know, Oregon wine can be found all over the world. It's a huge success story for the industry just in the past 50 so years. Um, and that definitely makes things exciting. It brings more opportunity and it's more challenging because it's more competitive. Uh, what I love about the organ industry is how collaborative we are. And I'm sure you've heard that from others as well, that we really do truly want to help each other. And that the philosophy of a rising tide lifts all boats is shared by so many. And, um, Yet even with that, there's we all still need to stay in business. And um, it's not just coming from within Oregon, but there's a sea of wine out there from a ton of different wine regions. And Oregon Star is definitely rising, and that's something that we want to capitalize on and we want to keep going. Oregon is still a very small part of the overall wine industry around the world and there's plenty of opportunities it's just getting out there reminding people who we are telling the story over and over and over again and it's it's hard you know it's, you need a lot of a lot of shoe grease because you're out panning the pavement a lot because there's so much wine out there and there's so many great stories so it's continually continually getting out there and uh, and opening bottles of wine getting people to taste and telling the story. You talked about how collaborative this industry is, mm -hmm. and a lot of people that, not a lot, but a good amount of people that you're collaborating with now, a lot of them knew you growing up and knew yeah. you when you were a kid. What is it like working with people who saw you as a kid originally and working with them now as a, um, as a collaborator? As a peer. Yeah, as a peer. You know, that is that's a really interesting question um, and something that comes up every once in a while for me because there's a lot of folks in the industry who I think of as mentors and yet I'll be collaborating with them on a project where we're peers. And for me, I have to remind myself that we are peers and that I'm not a 10 year old anymore. Um, and so that is just kind of acknowledging, okay, yes, um, I used to you know, they used to babysit me or, you know, whatever it was. And now we're peers and we're working together and there's equal respect for what we're contributing to the project and to the industry uh, as well. Because I don't feel like anybody still looks at me as the kid that I was. Mm -hmm. um, it's more in my mentality that I need to, to change that. Um, and it's great. I mean, there's so many... Um, amazing folks in the industry that I've grown up with and it's great to see their success to share in our success and I'm going to be really sad you know when we don't have all those mentors and pioneers around anymore. Can you talk a little bit about your experience in the wine industry as a woman? Being a, a woman in the wine industry is really interesting. Um, I feel like we're a bit isolated in Oregon in terms of there are a lot of female um, winemakers here. There's a lot of female um, 
winery owners and managers as well. Uh, but out in the wider world of wine, especially in distribution, it is very male dominated. And I feel like also, you know, being a younger female, I have to fight a bit harder and, and work harder to prove myself that no, I really do mean business um, when I go into some of those meetings. Uh, but it also makes me a little more memorable because I stand out amongst the sea of men. Mm -hmm. um, so I try to use that to my advantage as well so that people can remember, oh yeah, Sokol Blosser, it's run by Allison and her brother Alex, um, which is helpful because uh, it's such a competitive, competitive market. It's definitely challenging, you know, having children in the industry. So I have got three kids. Um, it's usually fairly obvious, you know, looking back when I was pregnant, even before I would tell people because you stop drinking wine, you know, or you're spitting a lot more, you're tasting and, and spitting everything. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and that's harder. The um, the travel is also definitely harder with um, with children, but you know, I've just made it work. And when the kids are young, especially with my last one, she was, you know, on my backpack here for wine club events for open house weekends and so that was easy and then as the kids get older um, now my 10 year old wants to come help and work and he'll be here for you know a few days um, sprinkled throughout the summer to to help and work and start learning parts of the business the parts that he can since he's still only 10. yeah can't go on the forklift yet. <laughs> not yet. He feels like he could. He should be able to drive the tractor. And I keep saying, not yet. <laughs> not yet. Got to be able to reach the pedals. <laughs> First up. <laughs> yeah. And can you tell us a little, about, a little bit about being a member of the Woman for Wine Sense and what you do? So I'm just a general member of the Women for Wine Sense. It was something that my mother um, actually helped start the local chapter and has been um, inducted into the Women Hall of Fame, I think is what it's called. Um, so it's just a neat group of, of um, you know, women who really like wine. Um, and, you know, I've, I've been to a couple of the um, annual retreats. Uh, there was one here a few years ago. Um, well, maybe it was not just a few years ago, five years ago or so, uh, in the in the valley that my mom spoke at. And it's just a really interesting, great collection of women. The other um, event that I really like that's in the industry for women is the Women of the Vine and Spirits. And so I've been to that conference a couple times in California, and my mom and I are strategizing about how to bring that to Oregon as well, because I think there's definitely a need here um, for something like that as well, because it was just an amazing group of, I think the first year was 500 and this last year was 750 women who are in the wine and spirits industry, all different aspects, whether it's HR or sales or winemaking together in a room, um, talking about and listening to speakers that are important and of interest to us. So can you talk a little bit about um, Evolution Wines and that whole group of wines that you guys produce here at Sokolbosser? Yeah, so my mom started that back in 98 and it was really the solution to a problem at the time where we were making all these different white varietals and one of them, Muller-Turgau, um, was something that she just loved and thought had huge potential. and. Um, we actually, my parents think that we were the first to commercially plant Muller-Turgau in the United States. That's how excited they were about it. Mm -hmm. And so she kept, you know, we kept making Muller-Turgau. She kept trying to sell it. 
um, finally a distributor in Texas said to her, you know, Susan, um, people can't pronounce it. People don't know what it is. They don't want to pay very much for it. So why don't you create a proprietary package for it? And, you know, maybe even blend in something else with it. So she came back and worked on it. And the name of evolution number nine came up. And the idea was, well, hey, if it's called evolution number nine, it needs to be nine grapes. And so then we started working on it. And we'd had this amazing test block of different clones. So we had some weird things like Sylvaner. Um, because we'd been testing out different clones and varietals. And so we put together this blend of nine white wines and it just exploded for us. It was a huge, huge thing um, that slowly started out and, and eventually grew quite large. And, you know, for the first 15 or so years, it was just Evolution White. And then we came out with an Evolution Red and then an Evolution Brute Sparkling. And then um, a couple of years ago, an Evolution Pinot Noir, and even more recently, a Riesling and a Chardonnay. And the idea behind these wines is that, you know, they are affordable, they're great with food, they're just easy um, to drink, very quaffable. Uh, if you want to go sit outside with friends and family and just have a nice glass of wine, uh, that that's the idea around Evolution. And we do grow some of the fruit, a very small portion. Most of it is something that we're sourcing. And we actually source it from Oregon, Washington, and California for the white and the red blend. The Pinot Noir is just Willamette Valley, though. And it's been a great complement to our Sokol Blosser line. So I feel like we've got two sides of our personality. We have the Sokol Blosser side, which is very serious, based off of our estate vineyards, what we're farming, what's under our control. Um, and it's uh, you know a much smaller production, um, very high touch type of product versus Evolution, which is a bit you know broader reach. And so it's a good it's a good balance. What's it like sourcing grapes from three different states? What are the challenges of getting all those grapes here? What do you are you able to go and visit those vineyards, mm -hmm. or do you just? Can you just talk about that a little bit? Yes, so Alex manages all of that. He's got great relationships with growers and a production facility in California and then also in uh, Eastern Washington that we've been working with for a really very long time, well, since we started Evolution, actually. And so that's enabled us to get the best quality fruit and also have a lot of flexibility. Um, so typically what we do um, is, you know, we contract for the fruit and then have it custom crushed for us. And then we bring um, either it as juice or wine to the winery. And then we will do all the final, you know, if it comes as juice, we'll do the fermentation. If it comes as wine, then we'll do all the final blending and bottling here on site. So where do you see the future of Sokolbosser going? Whew. Well, I would like to think that Sokolbosser will be staying in the family. That is definitely our goal, is to be multi-generational and to transition to the next generation. Um, we're going to continue to grow uh, in all the different parts. It's not that one part is going to suddenly explode, but I would just see things slowly, you know, Sokol Blosser brand slowly growing as um, our fruit matures and as we um, are able to, you know, either lease or purchase more vineyards. Um, evolution will continue to grow based on market demand um, because that's, that's, you know, how we uh, develop and grow that brand. Our on-site hospitality, um, we built this new tasting room 
five years ago, and um, we're already, you know, almost at capacity with it. So, you know, this is going to continue to grow on site. The tourism uh, boom in Oregon is very strong. People are really interested in wine country, which is great. So we will continue to expand um, our on-site offerings. And then from there, you know, we'll see um, what other opportunities come our way. You know, we are still family-owned and operated, so that's a blessing, but also um, a bit of a restraint because we can't just go buy whatever we want to buy. Mm -hmm. um, but we're, you know, that also makes us very cautious uh, and do a lot of analysis before we take a big step forward. Uh, but I imagine that there, there will be something that we'll get to do. I don't know when, I don't know what it is, but um, there'll be something else that pushes us, pushes us forward. To meet the new um, tourism demand that's coming into the Willamette mm -hmm. Valley right now, do you think that means more wineries like Sokolboss are going to have to grow the taste rooms bigger or just going to offer more diverse choices and like seated tastings and tours and stuff or where do you think that's going to yeah. go? So we built this facility because our original tasting room that we built in 78, um, we were way, way, way over capacity. Mm -hmm. And we outgrew that space long ago. And more importantly than that, we noticed that the type of consumer coming to visit us had changed. People were interested in a much more personal experience. They were interested to learn more about the wines, more about the land, um, more about the story. and you're just not able to provide that with a you know standing three people deep up at a bar just putting your glass there to get a to get a taste so we built this um, new tasting room because we wanted to be able to provide a variety of experiences for that consumer who was coming. And that consumer is spending a lot more money here as well, not just with us, but also with, you know, nicer hotels and the restaurants and, you know, everything is sort of developing and building up to support that tourism, which is great. And so we're able to provide now, you know, we do only seated tastings in our new space. We have a club only room. We have a, um, a kitchen with an executive chef who forages things on our property and works with local farms to produce, um, you know, special products for us. But then also he does a farm and forage culinary and wine pairing um, several times a week as well. And then we do hiking tours of the vineyard. If somebody really wants a helicopter or a horseback riding experience in the vineyard, we can do that as well. So we're just able to provide now a much wider and more um, curated or personal experience for our guests. And it's been really successful for us. And there's been a lot of other new tasting rooms in the area, either, you know, um, more established wineries building new facilities or upgrading their facilities or just new wineries coming on the scene and building really beautiful facilities as well because they're seeing the same thing that we're seeing and there's definitely a demand and an interest for it so I believe that we will continue to see more development that's going to support the tourism that's that's coming to our area. Um, so, besides size and besides the influx of tourists, what else has changed? Or what else have you seen has changed in the Oregon wine industry? What's different from when you were smaller to now? Hmm. 
Well, we talked about the competition. I mean, it's much more competitive. Um, the consolidation is definitely a big factor with that. Not only the outside investment coming into Oregon and some of the consolidation of the um, the wineries in Oregon, uh, and then also you know the first generation retiring and, and those transitions, either transitioning to the next generation or selling. Um, but the consolidation out in the marketplace is having an impact on our industry as well. So retailers consolidating, um, purchasing decisions no longer being made locally or in the store, but suddenly being made across the country. So those kinds of things happening at the retail level and then also the distribution level. You know, there used to be a lot more distributors and now you've got Southern Glaciers and I don't know if it's 45 or 47 markets now. Um, R&DC and Breakthrough, that merger, and who knows what's next after that. There's a lot of rumors about that, but my guess is they will be a similar size to Southern, Glacier, Southern Glaciers in a couple years. So that makes it harder. Um, for sort of the average smaller Oregon winery to break into distribution because you have to be a certain size to be able to get into those big networks, at least how they're currently set up. Maybe that will change and evolve. Um, it does open up opportunities for sort of that midsize and smaller distributor as well as those big ones consolidate. So those are definitely challenges, you know, for the market. Right now, you know, other things facing our industry, which, you know, we'll see how that all pans out, um, are what's happening with trade. Um, we export um, a fair amount of wine and it's about 10 to 15 percent of our business so it's an important part of what we do. We also buy you know imported products whether it's barrels or equipment um, or foil for sparkling wine bottles and so the challenges that are happening with the trade I don't want to say trade wars but that's kind of the way it's looking, um, could definitely have an impact on us, on both our ability to export and sell our product, but then also um, on our ability to, to buy things at the similar cost to what we'd been previously paying. Certainly labor is a huge challenge for our industry as well. Um, it's a challenge for many industries. Not only is it hard to find people to work in, the, in our tasting room with unemployment being so low, but there also needs to be something done to help support, you know, having a more consistent, stable um, supply of labor to work in the vineyards. There's a lot of challenges out there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's still fun. It's still exciting. There's still tons of opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> so what are some of the things you're excited about for the Oregon wine industry in the future? Well, I think that the, the outside investment and the outside attention on the industry has been a really good thing. Um, you know, the it just sh further shines a spotlight on Oregon and the potential that's here. It's going to make all of us up our game. It's going to make all of us, you know, learn some new things. Uh, and get more efficient as well. Uh, and it's going to broaden the brand Oregon and it's going to broaden the distribution. So that's going to improve everyone's odds of, uh, of selling out there. Um, so I think that, that, that that's been, so far, it's been a good thing. Um, I reserve the right to change my mind at, <laughs> at a later date, but so far I'll say that the outside investment and, and um, attention on Oregon has been a really good thing. Uh, I, I feel like Oregon's quality and Oregon's um, awareness is just on the rise. You know, we've been doing this for 
had Sokol Blosser so 46, 47 years. So we've finally almost kind of figured out how to farm our vineyards. You know, every year we get better. And so we're able to um, make better wine. The better we know our land and what the, those vines can produce, we can make better wine. We've also, you know, learned so much in terms of um, managing crop loads and um, yields and, and um, how to be the best organic farmers that we can be and what varietals work well, what clones work well, what rootstocks work well. And that took a long time to figure that out. And we're, I wouldn't say we're 100% there, but we're definitely a lot smarter and can make better choices when it comes to replanting or planting new land. And that's just gonna ultimately produce better quality better quality juice. And then what advice would you have for someone um, wanting to get into the Oregon wine industry? Run, <laughs> run. It's Don't much better that. to get into the industry on the consuming side <laughs> than on the production and working side. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, the Oregon wine industry is amazing. And it's amazing for somebody who wants to be in it for the right reasons. It's a lifestyle choice for sure. You're not gonna, most people aren't gonna get rich in this industry. You don't do it for that. You do it because you love the land. You love the winemaking craft. You do it because you love people on the hospitality side. And ultimately you do it because you love wine and food. And you love what that lifestyle brings. My brother and I always joke that we don't live the lifestyle, we just provide the lifestyle. <laughs> and that um, it, it's, it's true because we don't, you know, we want everybody who drives really fancy cars to come here and enjoy our wines and then go tell all their friends about it. But that's not necessarily the life that we're living, but that's the life that we want to provide for them. Um, so just to be eyes wide open going into it would be would be really important. And I would say, you know, pursue your passion and work in a lot of different parts of the industry. That's the really cool thing about the Oregon wine industry and the wine industry in general is if you're an accountant, that's great. We need accountants and you love wine and food, then it's perfect. You know, you can still do that with an accounting background. HR, you can do the same thing. It's not only for people who want to be winemakers or only for people who want to be farmers and, and grow grapes. Um, hospitality is a huge growing area. We need a lot more hospitality talent um, in Oregon. And Linfield's done an amazing job of helping to supply us with hospitality talent and accountants and all, you know, um, all that type of, um, of labor. There's so, m so much opportunity. So I would say, you know, start out, whether it's part-time in the tasting room or, you know, interning during harvest, um, whatever you can, just to get your feet wet, learn. And the other cool thing is that part of learning is trying a lot of wine. You can spit. I'm not saying that you gotta get drunk on everything, but you know, try a lot of wine, not just from Oregon, but from around the world. You know, really expand your knowledge and your palate and um, cook, you know, try different crazy things, see how things pair with each other and do it with friends. So good advice, just eat and drink a lot. <laughs> it, that can solve a lot of, if people would just eat and drink together, I think they could solve a lot of our, issues in the world. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. 
And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.